0: Welcome to Current Radio's politics station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. So, Abby, we're looking at a record-breaking number of countries holding national elections in 2024, over 40% of the world's population. It's a Democratic Super Bowl of sorts, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, Michael. It's an incredible moment in time. From the wealthiest nations, such as the U.S., India, and the U.K., To the most despotic like Russia and Iran, the global stage is set for a democratic showdown.
0: And yet, it's happening at a time when liberal democracy is under attack from authoritarian regimes and far-right nationalist parties. It's a paradox, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. Freedom House's 2023 report noted global freedom declined for the 17th consecutive year. Yet it also pointed out that while 35 countries experienced declines, 34 saw overall gains. It seems autocrats are neither infallible nor unbeatable.
0: And that's an important point to remember. There's a struggle, but there's also resilience. Now the principle of free speech, which is essential to a functioning democracy, is also under attack. Jacob Mangama, a rights campaigner, has pointed out how even open democracies have imposed restrictive measures to combat threats like hate speech, disinformation, and extremism.
1: Yes, and these elections could have profound geopolitical and economic impacts. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it could further destabilize an already unstable world. On the other, it could lead to some much-needed change. Consider Iran, for example. Its upcoming parliamentary polls could see the ousting of its clerical conservatives. But sadly, the fix is in. More than 25% of opposition candidates have already been disqualified.
0: And that's the challenge, isn't it? The democratic process is often undermined by those in power. We see this in Egypt, Hong Kong, and Russia, where the elections are more of a sham than a genuine democratic process. Putin's bid for a fifth presidential term is more of an imperial coronation than a contest. He's jailed, exiled, or eliminated rivals, and his approval rating remains high because many Russians know no other leader. It's a bleak picture.
1: It is, but there's also hope. Some elections may produce genuine turning points. Look at Pakistan and Bangladesh. They're unpredictable and volatile, but they're both going to the polls in 2024. And then there's India's general election. Prime Minister Narendra Modi's hopes of a third term could be frustrated by a new opposition coalition.
0: And we can't forget about Taiwan. Its upcoming elections will be a valuable demonstration of how highly democracy is still valued, despite external pressures. If the pro-independence Democratic Progressive Party wins again, it could infuriate Beijing and potentially draw in the U.S. and regional allies.
1: That's a very real possibility. And then there's South Africa. For the first time since the end of apartheid, the ANC could lose its overall majority. The party has been marred by corruption, leadership scandals, and high rates of crime and unemployment. A low turnout could seal the ANC's fate.
0: And this disillusionment with democracy isn't confined to Africa. It's a sentiment common throughout the nations of the West, even though they see themselves as democracy's home ground. The problem isn't democracy itself, but how it's applied and practiced. A recent Ipsos poll found a widespread belief that current democratic systems favor the rich and powerful and ignore everyone else.
1: Yes, and that's a sentiment that could drive radical change. All eyes will be on the U.S. come November. If President Joe Biden loses to his likely Republican challenger, Donald Trump, many around the world may conclude that democracy is on the decline.
0: A Trump victory could permanently upend the international order, tipping the balance towards authoritarianism and dictatorship. It's a sobering thought. Democracy is under threat, but it's also showing resilience. It's a complex, evolving landscape. It certainly is,
1: Michael. The struggle for democracy is ongoing. But as we've discussed, there's hope. Changes are happening. And as the world watches these elections unfold, we'll see how democracy continues to evolve and adapt in the face of these challenges.
0: From the global stage of democracy, let's now shift our focus to an incident that has raised concerns about security and the state of politics in one of the world's largest democracies, India. We're talking about the alarming breaches at the Indian parliament, first in 2001, and then again in 2023. The two incidents, although vastly different in their nature, have both left lasting impacts on the nation. Today we're discussing an alarming incident that happened in India. Abby, let's talk about the attack on the Indian parliament that took place on December 13, 2001, and the subsequent breach in 2023. Quite a contrast, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely, Michael. The 2001 attack was a meticulously planned terrorist assault. It was a close call for then-Vice President Krishan Kant, who was saved by a group of MPs who had come to see him urgently. The attack left eight security personnel dead.
0: Indeed, and it showed the unity of the nation's leaders in the face of adversity. Sonia Gandhi, then-Congress President, called up PM Vajpayee to ensure his safety. It's a testament that political opponents are not necessarily enemies.
1: Fast forward to 2023, the Parliament was breached again on the same date, but this time it was by two men claiming to be unemployed and wanting to protest. They managed to get past three security checkpoints and set off yellow gas canisters. Thankfully, no one was hurt.
0: Yes, and the incident raises serious questions about the security of the Parliament building. After the 2001 attack, measures were put in place to beef up security. But this breach shows that more needs to be done. It's a bit disconcerting to think...
1: Absolutely, Michael. It's alarming that they managed to breach the security of what should be one of India's most protected buildings. It's a wake-up call for security enhancements and a review of current protocols.
0: And let's not forget the political implications. The opposition took the government to task for the security lapse, but 14 MPs were suspended for disrupting the houses. This shows an increasing bitterness in interparty relations, which is not healthy for the functioning of the parliament.
1: That's a valid point, Michael. The role of presiding officers has also changed over the years. They used to show more flexibility and fairness towards the opposition, but it seems less visible now. It's a stark contrast to the unity displayed in 2001.
0: It's a reminder that the changing nature of politics impacts the functioning of key institutions. It's essential to remember that political opponents are not enemies, and that a healthy democracy requires open, respectful discourse. We can only hope that this incident serves as a catalyst for positive change.
1: Well said, Michael. It's a critical moment for India's democracy, and we'll be following the developments closely. The country can do without this escalating confrontation and bitterness in politics, and it's up to the leaders to set the tone for a more constructive dialogue.
0: From the security breaches in India's parliament and the changing dynamics of its democracy, we now turn our attention to a broader perspective on democracy and politics. We'll be examining the recent Wreath lectures by Ben Ansell, which delve into the future of democracy, security, solidarity, and prosperity. Stay tuned as we unpack his intriguing assertion about the role of self-interest in politics. Abby, let's delve into the recent Wreath lectures by Ben Ansell where he explores the future of democracy, security, solidarity, and prosperity. What do you make of Ansell's claim that politics fails primarily because everyone is selfish, or at the very least, self-interested?
1: Well, Michael, it's an interesting theory, but I think it's a bit reductionist. Yes, self-interest can clash with collective needs. For instance, nimbyism, which is often blamed for Britain's housing and infrastructure issues. But is selfishness really the root of our political
0: ailments? That's a good point, Abby. In fact, many argue that the opposite is true that the bonds of community and collective life have ruptured due to market forces, identity politics, and the decay of civil society. It's not so much about what kind of society do I want to live in, but more about who are we?
1: Exactly. And it's interesting how Ansel recognizes the shifting relationship between identity and solidarity in redefining conceptions of belonging. He suggests fostering a greater sense of national belonging to bind together different groups. But this is a complex issue. Nationalism and national identity can both unite and divide us, depending on the context.
0: Right. And it can also obscure the fact that not everyone is affected equally by political decisions. Take austerity measures, for example. The claim that we're all in it together overlooks the fact that the poor often bear the brunt of these policies. So as Roley from the lecture audience suggested, solidarity has to come through class.
1: And that's an important point, isn't it? Solidarity isn't just about state assistance. It's about collective action, about those without power, challenging those in authority through grassroots organization and politics. It's about workers realizing that their only power lies in their capacity to act collectively. Yet this aspect of solidarity seems to be missing from Ansel's discussion.
0: Indeed, Abby. The erosion of these collective movements has led to widespread political disaffection. We need to rebuild these forms of solidarity if we are to effectively pursue collective goals. It's not just about needing solidarity when we need it ourselves, but about collectively shaping the world. And
1: And that's the crux of it, isn't it? The mechanisms through which we can collectively shape the world have broken down. The challenge now is to rebuild them, to rekindle that sense of solidarity and collective action. It's not going to be easy, but it's crucial for the future of our
0: democracy. From the complexities of political solidarity and the future of democracy, we now turn our attention to a recent event that brought together politics, technology, and culture in a fascinating way. Let's switch gears and delve into the annual conference organized by Italy's Brothers of Italy party, where tech mogul Elon Musk was the star guest. His message was quite clear. Make more Italians to save Italy's culture. But there's more to the story. Let's unpack it. Elon Musk, the tech mogul, was the star guest at an annual conference organized by Italian PM, Giorgia Maloney's party, Brothers of Italy, in Rome. His message was quite clear make more Italians to save Italy's culture.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Italy does have one of the lowest birth rates in the world. But what's even more intriguing is the backdrop of this message. Maloney is a known opponent of surrogacy, which is criminalized in Italy. And yet Musk himself has had children through
0: surrogacy. Indeed, Abby. It's an interesting dynamic. But let's talk about the conference itself. It's called the Atrehu Conference, named after a character in the 1984 film, The Neverending Story. And Maloney is a known fan of fantasy, especially J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings.
1: Yes, she's quoted saying that Tolkien could say better than anyone what conservatives believe in. She doesn't consider the Lord of the Rings fantasy. It's seen as a pillar of Italy's post-fascist far-right parties.
0: Right. And the conference has seen a fair share of headliners over the years, Bannon, Le Pen, Orban, and this year, apart from Musk, Santiago Abascal from Spain's Vox Party and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak also addressed the crowd. And the venue, Castel Sant'Angelo, it's a historical marvel.
1: Absolutely, Michael. Built in 135 A.D. as a mausoleum for Emperor Hadrian, it's now a public museum. But moving on to Musk's interview, he was very vocal about the woke mind virus that he says is gripping the U.S. and warned it's moving to Italy, calling it evil.
0: Musk's views on wokeness have been quite clear, but he also touched on other issues like the future as a multi-planet species and the benefit of legal immigration, especially in the context of Italy, where irregular immigration is a significant issue.
1: His comments on AI were also quite striking. He referred to AI as the biggest inflection point since Homo sapiens, even suggesting that artificial intelligence will be a new species. He seems to believe that AI is a double-edged sword and that there is a need for regulatory control.
0: Musk's views are always fascinating, aren't they? He sees threats to humanity in low birth rates, nuclear war, and AI. He calls AI the magic genie and warns us to be careful what we wish for. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the future holds for us.
1: Indeed, Michael. As always, there's never a dull moment when Elon Musk is involved. It's going to be interesting to see how his statements play out in the larger context of global politics and technological advancements.